0: Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, just want to say, aren't you just so thankful for the leadership, the men of God who lead our church? Just, the, uh, just reminded of with Mike and just all of our pastors. Yes, you can clap. Um, Chad, Josh, Tyler. Um, it's just incredible to see these men who love the word, love you, are faithful in their own personal lives, are consistent, um, and, just, and just are committed to this body. It's incredible. And uh, the Lord really uses them in incredible ways. Also, um, some of the guys who are in training for that, like Bo, um, it's just, you guys are, are very blessed. I'm blessed um, to have them. And so, um, with that being said, I'm excited now to, uh, to look at God's Word with you, and, uh, and here we are. We're, we're lost in this book already, right? It's, it's been a little while. It's been some time, and, and uh, we've kind of gotten the feel of what this book is and what it's going to teach us, and now we get to just continue to sit in it and learn from it and be exhorted by it. And this is just going to be an incredible time this morning even, very practical for us, very straightforward. You know, the Bible shouldn't be confusing to you, it should be clear. It should just be very straightforward and clear. Um, There's no other way around it. Uh, You should understand what God says and what God means by what he says, um, because that's why God wrote his word, to give it to you so that by it you would come to salvation and grow. There's no confusion. There shouldn't be any allegorical, mystical meaning behind the text that you are just content with not knowing. Um, you, the, 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 the word is clear. It's incredible that the word also is uh, so um, general and broad in, in some ways that it uh, speaks to every generation. Um, you say, well, why doesn't the word speak about this area in my life? Well, it does. And the Lord is so wise as to speak in such a way that it speaks to you and your situation now and it also speaks to someone in that situation 50 years ago. Um, and so it's just incredible, the Lord's wisdom in writing his word, but we can understand that. And the reason why I make mention that to you this morning is just because this passage in, is just so straightforward. You're going to see and you've seen so far, it's just extremely practical. Um, and uh, and it, it really verifies a lot of which you probably already know, which is the evidences of salvation. And so let's go ahead and just read these verses again. This will be the last week that we're in this section. And uh, I'll have to move us because uh, there's just such, so many great things to say here. Um, uh, but we got to, you know, keep going. It's crazy how in epistles, I mean, there's just, I mean, literally you could spend time on every phrase. And there's just so so much overlap connecting every phrase that it's like this applies to this while at the same time it's leading us into that. I mean, there's just so much to be said. There's so much to be said. We could spend uh, so much time in these verses. Um, And so it it hurts me a little bit sometimes to move on uh, because there's more to be said, but we're gonna do it this morning. We're gonna move all the way through verses four through 10. Okay, so let's read it. Starting in verse four, chapter one. Just an incredible, incredible passage here. Now, what we're seeing in this particular passage, as you know, because I mentioned it last week, is that Paul is describing here the positive proofs of God's election of these believers. It's just very plain, very straightforward. You can see it. It's not hard to see. Paul is describing the positive proofs of the election of these particular believers. He's describing the reasons that he is confident in their salvation. These are the great proofs of their salvation. Knowing, beloved brothers, or the ones being loved by God, believers in Christ, that God has chosen you, or literally in the Greek, the election of you, knowing the election of you because, and then he just goes on this list to describe why he's confident of their election. It's just very simple. These are the reasons, the observations, the, the, the things, the characteristics that assured Paul of the salvation of these believers. These are the things that Paul looked for to be assured of their salvation. And so this can even apply in terms of what you look for and maybe your children or others in terms of verifying their salvation. Of course, we can't know the heart. The Lord only does, but there are things that we can see just like the fruit of a tree gives evidence to the type of tree that it is. So also the believer in Christ shows this great fruit that verifies or shows or give evidences of or proofs of the reality or lack thereof of their salvation. And so I've entitled this, sec- uh, this, this message, Evidences of Election, and this is part two. Last week was part one. And so what's happening in this section, you already know. Paul and his associates, Paul and his associates are thanking God for this true church, that's how this section started. There was this introduction where Paul described himself. We talked about who they were. Paul then described this church, uh, and we talked about how this church came to be, Acts 17 and 18. He describes them as those who are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. In other words, these are true believers. This is a true church. He describes the fact that he's been thanking God for them. He's thanking God continually for these men and women, these called out ones, this church, this those who've been effectively called and saved by God. And uh, the reason being, and he's doing so in prayer, and they're doing so in prayer all the time, he says. And um, he says their faith has produced this great work. Their their faith has produced works. He's seen it and heard about it. Their love has produced toil. Remember this? And their hope in Christ has produced this steadfastness. In other words, they are ones who have faith in Christ and you can see it in their works. These are the ones who have the love of God and for others being built in them. And you can see it in their extenuating effort to serve the Lord. And they have this great hope of Christ's return and therefore it's keeping them steadfast. It's keeping them walking with Christ. Uh, we've seen that they're men and women who have been greatly loved by God. He he's describes them as beloved, um, perfect, par, uh, perfect tense, having been loved and continually being loved by God. They are ones who have been loved in the past, in election, and now have been loved through salvation and are continually in their sanctification being loved by God. And these are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are ge- this is a general term for those who are believers in Christ. And then he describes these great, as we move into verse four, really these great positive proofs of this salvation that they have, demonstrating the reality of their salvation. And so really from Paul, listen, this is an affirmation. Can you imagine receiving this from the Apostle Paul? This is affection. This is encouragement. This is causing the church to reflect on what God had done in them. If I say to you, I'm so grateful for your salvation. I mean, look at who you are. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've become. I mean, this is great encouragement. And implication is, and really, uh, you know, what's implied here is is that you should keep doing this because this is the great work that God is doing in you. And so it also has helped, uh, is helping to keep them focused on what's really important. It's encouraging them to keep going. And we've read that this is the point of Paul's letter here. Really do this stuff that you're doing more and more. You're a great church. You're a faithful church. You're living faithfully in the Lord. Just keep on doing it and increase more and more. And so I hope that this encouragement does the same for you. It shows What God has done in you, it encourages you with the affection and the work of God, and it keeps you focused, and it should keep you doing these things even more. And so what are the evidences, or what were the evidences that Paul looked for as proofs for salvation? Well, I described them to you already. Number one, authenticity, verse five. Number two, imitation, verse six A. Number three, reception, verse six B., Number four, reputation, verse seven, and eight B through nine A. Number five, multiplication, verses, verse eight. Number six, repentance, verse nine B. Number seven, service, verse nine B. Number eight, perseverance, verse 10. Authenticity, imitation, reception, reputation, multiplication, repentance, service, perseverance. And so these are the fruits, listen now, and we've talked about um, a couple of them, the, two, the first two, and I've introduced the third. I'm going to briefly recap them. But listen, I want you to understand, this is the fruit in which the Apostle Paul judged the reality or lack thereof of salvation in these people. These are, this is the fruit. This is the, these are the proofs that the Apostle Paul looked for when assessing whether or not this was a true church, that this group of people had come to know Christ, that this was made up of a, of a group of people who have been saved. That's the church, right? And uh, so these are the characteristics that Paul valued as positive proofs. And now he's celebrating them in what, he, in what God has done, but he's also uh, implying that they should keep living in them. And so last week we covered really, we had to get into verse 4 a little bit, so we covered the doctrine of election just a little bit. Um, even adding on to when Mike preached a little while back to the eternal decree of God. And, and so we just kind of keep on building on that doctrine. But uh, I, I, I taught you a little bit from there. And, uh, and then we covered really the first two evidences um, from verse five and six, and we previewed the third. So let's, uh, let's get caught up here and let's um, carry on. Once again, these are extremely practical. The first evidence from verse five, is authenticity. The first evidence of election we see in verse five and it's authenticity. It says this, because our gospel came to you, I'm confident, I'm encouraged, I'm giving thanks to God, knowing that you've been elected by God, that you're brothers, that you've been saved. God is loving you, has loved you, he's chosen you. Why? Verse five, because, okay, why, Paul? Because he says, our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. At first glance, that might be a little bit confusing. What's he exactly saying there? Well, it's real simple. Now, this really focuses on the minister's ministry to the Thessalonians. I'm confident in your salvation because of our ministry to you. That's what he's saying here. Uh, They had preached to them the true gospel. That they were, the the confidence that they were saved came from the fact that they had given them the true message. And um, the same message that had saved Paul and Timothy and Silvanus was the same message in which they gave to the Thessalonians. He calls it our gospel. We didn't give you a different gospel. This was the same message that saved us, we gave it to you, he's saying. And they gave it with explicit words of Scripture. It says he, 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 they gave it with boldness, with honesty, with conviction, with persuasion. Remember Acts told us they persuaded them. That's part of preaching, persuasion. Authority. And really here Paul is alluding to the fact that they protected the quality and the content of the message when they gave it to them. Um, they were willing to suffer Paul says, for giving them this message, for, for not compromising the message, were willing to suffer for that. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. His divine working was happening through them and in the hearers. And so, so the Holy Spirit was not only working in their preaching, but the Holy Spirit was working in the hearing of the word. And uh, they had genuine motives he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you? They had genuine motives. They were wanting the Thessalonians to be saved. They were wanting Christ to be honored and obeyed. They were wanting God to be glorified and believed in. They weren't motivated by dishonest gain, and they lived holy lives that complemented their message. And those holy lives further validated the truth of what they were preaching. And uh, it further validated the truthfulness, the sincerity of the gospel for these, for these people. The Thessalonians had been given the authentic gospel. And so they've been given this authentic message by authentic ministers. And uh, that gave Paul confidence. That gave Paul confidence that this indeed was true. This was a real Uh, working of God in their lives, that their acceptance and their transformation stemmed from a place of authenticity. And I think this is very relevant to us as you assess your own salvation or you assess the salvation of those you care about in love. One of the questions that you need to ask is, what is the message that they actually heard? Or what is the message that I heard and believed in and responded to? Was it the biblical message of salvation? Was it the right thing? Is it what God actually says and with uh, the, the, the right result um, coming from it? And so, they, Paul here is confident of their salvation because of the message he preached to them, the message that they, they received. And that led to the next evidence, which is imitation. Um, verse 6a, it says this And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And let's stop there. You became imitators. Simply put, their lives changed. I mean, you really want this practical, straightforward answer is what are the evidences of true election? I mean, this is pretty simple. The true gospel has to come to the mind and the heart and the ears of the person. And then secondly, there has to be a changed life. There has to be a changed life. Simply put, their lives changed. You became imitators of us and the Lord. They began following the Lord. That was the, That's what gave Paul confidence of their salvation. They were changing. They were leaving behind their old lives. They were leaving behind their old lives. They were following the ministers. And, that, uh, and this was the proof that they had believed the minister's message. This was the proof that they had believed their message. And so listen, now I want you to know this. Um, th- this is what he says even later on. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 14. They, they not only became imitators of, of the Lord, not only imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, but they just became imitators of faithful Christians. Verse 14, for you brothers became what? Imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And specifically, they became imitators in their suffering and their persecution. And so this was this was what Paul looked for. Now listen, I want you to notice. I mentioned last time. Stay close. Listen close. I mentioned last time that this is the third step, really chronologically. Okay, this is the third step chronologically. The second step is really the next part of the verse in verse six in six b, and it's our third heading. I put it up here just in order of the text, but it's. Number, uh, this is number two chronologically, okay? And it's reception, verse 6b. And we really haven't covered this one. So this is where we move into new information. But you say, what do you mean this is the second step theologi- uh, uh, chronologically? Well, if you look at 6b, it says, uh, for you received... Literally, it's, it's, no, uh, it's having received. It's uh, a participle, a perfect participle. Again, something happened in the past, ongoing implications, participle, I-N-G word that's describing something previously stated. You became imitators, and now how did you become imitators? Having received the word. And so it's modifying this becoming imitators. It's telling us something about their imitation. And their imitation came from something, which was having received the word. And so you could almost say it in in this way that would help you make sense of it. Having Having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, you became imitators. Okay, So they got the real gospel. Look about, think about how practical this is. They received the real gospel. They received it with joy in the midst of affliction, and their lives changed. I mean, if I were to ask you what would give you proof of a believer in Christ, you'd probably say the same thing. they got to hear the word. they got to receive it no matter what the, re- the consequences might be, and they got to have a changed life. Something's different in them. And so this is what Paul is exactly saying here. And so um, you became imitators after you received as a result of receiving the word of God. If you receive the word, then you do what the word says. I mean, that just makes sense, doesn't it? You say, well, I, I received the word, but, uh, but I don't follow the word. Then you didn't receive the word. <laughs> I mean, that's not complicated. And so they received the word, And they heard the true gospel, they received it, their lives changed. That's what Paul looks for as the pattern of true salvation, of the pattern of true salvation. You hear the true gospel, you receive it, and you follow. And so let's focus on this aspect specifically, okay? Having received the word, verse 6b, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, now, we know very clearly, and you already know this, that for someone to become a believer in Christ, you have to receive the gospel in order to be saved. You have to receive the word. I mean, that's just, that's, that's the truth. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly what? My disciples. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word about Christ. Uh, no one is saved apart from the word of God. And that's a definitive statement. You might say, well, what about uh, someone who, who doesn't have a Bible with them? Well, anything that you know that you're telling someone about Jesus Christ has come from the word. And so no one is saved apart from the word of God, Period. And, uh, and and so to receive the word is to become a Christian. And Jesus, so Paul is saying, "I know your election because you received the word." That's pretty pretty obvious. They agreed with God about uh, about their sinful condition. Now this is specifically regarding the gospel. They agreed with God about their sinful condition. They agreed with God that they could not save themselves by their good works. This has to be true to become a believer. They believed in Jesus that He was the, uh, God's Christ. He's the Lord. That He died as a substitute. Uh, paying the penalty for sin on their behalf, that he died and rose again, and that they respond and they responded with repentance and faith. I mean, that has to be true for them to have become Christians. They received the word, but Paul here is not only affirming what they received. Now, this is very, very uh, important. Paul is not only affirming what they believed; he's also speaking of the fact that there were factors surrounding this acceptance of the gospel that confirmed their salvation in Paul's mind. There were factors surrounding their acceptance of the gospel which confirmed their salvation in Paul's mind. What were those factors? Well, they received the word in much, what? Affliction. First, affliction. Joy too, but affliction. We know, because we read it from Acts 17, that the Jews specifically were opposed, listen now, they were opposed to Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. So they immediately began persecuting Christians, immediately. I mean, this is a very short time that they're there in Thessalonica. It's more than three Sabbaths as described in First Thessalonians, we're not told about more time, but we know because of some other factors that this was definitely more than just three weeks, maybe a few months. But immediately, within a few months, imagine becoming a believer in Christ and then being dragged out of your house. Would you stay with it? Would you hold fast? Would you stand firm? Would you be faithful? Many of us say we would, but, and I hope you would. But they be, imme- immediately began being persecuted and they, the reason being is because these people in Thessalonica, specifically the Jews, viewed them not only as a threat to Judaism, but as a threat to maintaining their favor with Rome in Thessalonica. Remember, they were a free, they were a free city, and uh, the Romans occupied this place. The Romans uh, owned this place; they were under Roman jurisdiction. But they weren't. Uh, there was no Roman guards that were uh, situated there. Consistently, they, they were trusted. Uh, their loyalty to, to Rome was trusted. And so, so they, this was a threat. If there was another king that these people were following, then they would be opposing the king of Rome. Rome would find out and Rome would have to come in and change the whole landscape of Thessalonica and oversee to make sure people weren't turning against Caesar. And so this was a threat. It was a threat to their freedom. It was a threat to their comfort. It was a threat to their power. They oppose the Christians. Listen, they oppose the Christians not because it wasn't true. They oppose the Christians because of the implications for their lives, the implications for their particular lives. And oftentimes, listen, many times people reject Christianity. They reject Christ not because the message is false, but because of its implications for their lives. And that's a scary decision. That's a scary decision because you're making a decision based upon this life and it's gonna also have implications for the next. So because of its implications for the lives, but remember now, they were so relentless in their persecution that they dragged off Jason, they dragged out the new believers, they stole money from them and then they relentlessly, and we saw this in Acts, followed them to Berea and opposed them in Berea to shut them up. And so... This was the persecution during the time of hearing the gospel being preached to them. And what'd they do? Well, these were believers, these new believers received the word. Regardless of the consequences. In the midst of much persecution, they received the word. It didn't matter what was gonna happen to them. And this was a great testimony to the genuineness of their faith. It didn't, they they didn't receive it with superficial and selfish motives. And they didn't flail out as soon as something hard happened to them. I mean, do you know that the Lord is, you say, what's God doing in my suffering? Well, I can tell you what he's always doing. He's always testing your faith, always. Always, 100% of the time, what's God doing in my suffering? One of the things, 100% of the time, for sure, is testing your faith. Is it real? Let's see if it stays. Let's see if it makes it to the end. He's always testing your faith. And you're not gonna stay with the gospel unless you believe it in the midst of this kind of affliction. You're not gonna stay with it. There would be no point. If you're following Christ because of the benefits to this life, as soon as suffering, affliction, persecution, hardship, inconvenience, sacrifice of my time, my energy, my resources, I mean, whatever it is, as soon as those things come, you're out. Because the whole point of following Christ for you in the beginning was benefit to this life. That's the way God weeds out those who are false converts. And so, but these folks, I mean, they received the gospel and they were gonna withstand the affliction. Why? Because this is true. Where else are we gonna go? We gotta be saved. He's the Lord. And so they didn't receive it with superficial selfish motives. They weren't like the rocky soil, which receives the word with joy superficially because of its benefits. Then it's only to be scorched out by the persecution and testing and opposition that comes because the gospel or the the gospel that they believed in didn't give them exactly what they want. Instead, listen now, these were true believers in the gospel, They were were true believers in the gospel. God had graciously given them salvation, which they knew that they needed. They needed to be right with God. They needed to avoid his judgment. Like Peter, they knew that there was nowhere else that they could go because Jesus alone had the words of eternal life. Where are they gonna go? These were the words of eternal life. They were willing to give up this life to have God and eternal life. And so they went through it. And guess what? They didn't only go through it. They went through it with what? Joy. They went through it with joy. Now, that doesn't make any sense unless you're a true believer. Why? Because what they received far outweighed what they were enduring. They had the greatest treasure on earth, they had the greatest treasure in the heavens, they had the greatest treasure in the history of mankind salvation in Christ. They had God back. They were separated from God because of their sin. There was no way back to God and God made a way back to himself. That's what they had. This was greater than self and safety and the desires of this life. Flip to Matthew chapter 13, verse uh, 44. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Some of you guys might know this verse. This is a parable about salvation. Salvation. says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a parable of salvation. You find the treasure of Christ, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of right standing with God, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life. And in your joy, you're willing to give up this life. To have what is of surpassing worth, which is Christ and His salvation. That marks a true believer. And that's what it means to be a believer in Christ. You gave up this life, you were willing to give up everything in this life to have true salvation. This joy is also supernatural. Flip back to 1 Thessalonians. This joy is also supernatural. So inevitably, what Paul's looking at here also is that this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You received the word in affliction, which was the proof of your genuine belief in the gospel, and you did it with this supernatural joy that doesn't make any sense. Galatians 5 tells us this is the fruit of the Spirit. It came as a result of a new heart. It came as a result of a renewed mind. It came as a result of new values. A new value system. You only have joy in the gospel in this kind of affliction because you have new values, which is Christ, God's acceptance, your forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. You have a new love, and this only caused them to be joyful in the midst of their suffering. And this could only come by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. They had the truth. They'd been graciously given salvation. They weren't gonna turn away. The only explanation here is that the Holy Spirit opened their eyes that they really believed because they were willing to endure suffering to have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had taught them that this persecution would come with being a faithful Christian. Paul already taught them that. Look at First Thessalonians chapter three. Just turn one page over. Verses three through four. He wants verse three, no one to be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are what? We're destined for this. You already know that. Well, they only had one minister since they became Christians. Who was it? Paul. So who do you think told them? Paul, really Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. Paul told them this already. Verse four, for when you, we were with you, we kept What? telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know. I mean, that's what Paul told them early on in their Christian life. Just understand that part of this whole thing is suffering and affliction. And so they knew. Paul had discipled them in this, told them about it. They were taught. They were also taught about the return of Christ. And so they knew that they needed to endure to the end. And so I'm sure Paul told them similar, something similar to what he would ra- or later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 12. He says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so their willingness to suffer and maintain this otherwise inexplicable joy in the gospel was the proof of their genuine salvation. And I want you to know, listen, Paul gives the same reasoning To prove the genuineness of his ministry, endurance of suffering and affliction. Chapter two. Look at this, in verses one through six. For you yourselves know, brothers. Now he listen. Now Paul is defending himself, adamantly defending himself. Not that they questioned his apostleship, but they questioned some of their motives. People, not not the church, but those outside the church, were saying these men came to you with false motives. And false, uh, uh, false goals. They had, they were, there was selfish ambition mixed in with what they were doing. And Paul's defending himself here. But look at what he points to in defending the sincerity of his ministry. Ready, verse one, chapter two. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already what our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul says, you want proof of the sincerity of my ministry? It's not that it was a success. The proof of my ministry, the genuineness of it, is, my, is in my willingness to suffer for it. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense to do this if you didn't have the right motives. It would make no sense for them to endure this if they didn't have the right motives, which was to honor God, to be faithful to his word, and to see the salvation of sinners. I mean, it would make no sense to do this unless that was your motive. Because you know what it's not producing? Any great benefit in this life. I mean, what it caused for them was for their reputation to be slandered. It, would, it caused them to be hated. It, it caused them to suffer malice. It, it caused them to f- suffer slander. It was obviously not financially prosperous because this job was not producing anything great in them. They depended completely on the people that they ministered to. There was physical suffering. There was sacrifice physically, emotionally. This was not like it produced any great glory for themselves. I mean, they could do a lot of other things if that's what they were seeking, right? (laughs) Like they could just do a lot of other things and and gain that if that's what they were seeking. But they had, here's what Paul says. We've just been called by God, entrusted with the word, and we want to please God, and we want to do this for your sake, and we're willing to suffer in order to be faithful and that was the proof that Paul wanted the congregation to see, to defend his sincerity, to defend his sincerity. And this is what Paul looks at as proof of the genuineness of their salvation, that they were willing to suffer and hold fast to the word. That's, what's the, that's the proof. And assessing the genuineness, uh, genuineness of salvation. And so here's what happens. Ready? It's pretty simple. They heard the genuine message through genuine ministers. They genuinely received it, not superficially, and their lives changed. I mean, that's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Those are the evidences of salvation so far. Now there's more. The fourth thing here is that their changed lives became public. They became public. Number four, we see here, reputation, another evidence of election. Reputation. Verse seven, verse eight B, verse nine A. Let's keep moving here. Verse seven. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. But your faith in God, move down to eight B, has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything Verse 9a, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. I mean, this is pretty simple. What Paul is saying here is other people have seen it and other people have heard about it. You changed and people are seeing it. And so he says here in verse six, as a result, you yourselves, verse 6a, verse 7, sorry, became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became examples. This is from the word tupas, which means a mark made by like a blow or by pressure or like, it's like seal on a wax. There's an impression in a coin or like an engraving. It's an image, it's a copy, it's a picture, it's an example. And specifically here, it's interesting that this image or this mark Is produced by pressure. Specifically, that's the meaning of the word. And so I think Paul, in in his mind here, still has the idea of persecution and suffering sanctifying them and them being an example as to how to live in suffering and affliction and persecution. But that's what's produced this Christ-likeness in them. They've become a mark. They've become an example. They've become an imprint. They've become an engraving of Christ for others to see. And now they're also having their mark on them. And so this is incredible. Christ had sanctified them in just a little while. I mean, this church is less than a year old. They're young. And they've become examples for other persecuted Christians to follow. They've become so active in their faith that they've been used by God to shape other people's lives, other believers' lives. They left their spiritual mark on others. People are now following their examples. They've been shaped by God as a picture of Christ and they're now shaping others. This is incredible. Think about this. They're examples. Examples to who? Well, it says in verse seven, to the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what Paul is saying here is intentional. This is regionally in Macedonia, which would include Philippi and Berea. This is Northern Greece nationally uh, um, in Achaia, which means Southern Greece, which include places like Athens and Corinth. And so their faith had become public. Other people saw it. They had faithful lives. They'd been sanctified in this short amount of time. And this is what Paul looked at as evidence of genuine salvation. He's celebrating it with them. And this really makes sense. I mean, I think about some of you. When I was reading this, I thought particularly about, I don't know if he's in here, I'll embarrass him, but Ben, uh, ben Groff. Just because he's become, it, it, the, the, he's be, he's a, there he is. He's been a faithful man and he's so faithful. He focuses on his faith in so many different arenas of his life. I mean, it's just pervasive and you just can't help, you, he can't hide it. Everywhere he goes, you just say that's a faithful man because he loves the Lord. It's, it's become so real to him that it's pervasive in every single environment. You can't hide it anymore. It's not it's not relegated to only a particular environment. He's not one person here and then one person over here. It's just focused, can't be hidden. Because he wants to be Christ like in every situation. And so they become exam- in the same way, these people have become so focused on honoring the Lord and being faithful to his word that it's just it's pervasive. You can't not see it. And people are now hearing about it, hearing about their example. And this makes sense. This makes a lot of sense. Uh, Think about what God instructs right after someone comes to know Christ. What is it? Baptism, which is a public display of one's faith. It's going public with your faith. And and what does that lead to? It leads to a proof that this person is ready and willing to follow the Lord, doesn't it? It also points to the fact that uh, this person should become accountable to others. Now they're claiming to be a Christian. Everybody watch their life. We're in it together though, right? And it's also that their lives are now gonna testify to the saving work of Christ and they're gonna become examples for other people to follow. I mean, God just so brilliantly prescribes baptism right after salvation for this very purpose. And if these people are true believers in Christ, they're gonna go public with their faith. And this is exactly what Paul's saying here. It's like you making a disciple and, and you leading this person to Christ and other people then coming to you and say, I, I think they, this is salvation for them is real because I mean, I saw them the other day here and they were you know living like this. Other people are just seeing it. They're changing. These people are really, this person's changed. And so he says in verse 8b, your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He's speaking of the word up in verse 8a, but I think he's, um, he's, um, he's saying here more of, an, of their example. For not only has the word sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The, the, this is still an example. And so we need not say anything. What does that mean here? What Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are I mean, this is pretty simple. Whatever they travel, they don't even have to tell people about what happened in Thessalonica. People already hear about it, heard about it. Uh, People already know what's going on. And um, so they don't have to say much because the people here are changing so much. Look at verse 9b, or I'm sorry, 9a. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, others are saying when they get to these different places, other people are coming to them and saying, wow, what an amazing work of God that happened at Thessalonica. I can't believe what kind of reception you guys had there. That they received you and they received the word. And when you went to go preach the gospel to them and how they responded and who they are now and what they were then. I mean, I can't believe it. Paul said, you already heard about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just part of Paul's confidence in their salvation. Their faith was so active. It became more and more public and obvious and evident and influential. They were faithful in all environments. They genuinely loved God. They, they were willing to follow Christ publicly. They had become matured examples. They endured suffering with joy. They believed the word deeply. And this was exceptionally obvious to Paul. And so this was proof to Paul that they had become Christians, that they had been saved. So pretty simple so far. They received the real word, the real gospel. Uh, Their lives changed because of it. And when their lives changed, other people saw it. And and this was just the, the characteristics that Paul looked for. Well, we come to a fifth one here, and it's Multiplication. Verse eight, verse 8a, it says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. And so they were evangelistic and their lives were examples. The testimony about their lives went forth, but it was not just the testimony about their lives. The word of God sounded forth from them. In other words, they were evangelistic. They heard the true gospel. They received it genuinely. Their lives changed. And they were active in sending the word out from where they were. And the word was sounding forth from them. Literally, the word here, it means it rang out from you. The word, particularly, rang out from you. The word is, 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 is the thing that's being sent out. It's the thing that's ringing out. It's receiving the action. The word is. It's, it's ringing out. It's, it's being trumpeted out. It's the idea of being reverberated out from you. They were, Listen to what this church was doing early on. They were fulfilling the great commission. I mean, that's as simple as that. What they received, they were giving out. Right, it's what the apostle says. Silver and gold have I not, but what I do have, I give to you. Which is what salvation in Christ. They were making it heard again in Macedonia. I mean, they were making it heard in their city, in their own region, and then in the nation. They were literally making an impact internationally and globally. They went, they sent, and they proclaimed. They proclaimed the gospel. They were part of the Great Commission. And listen now, their faithfulness to be evangelistic and to fulfill the Great Commission was proof, evidence that Paul looked at as to confirming that these people had been truly saved. I mean, it's just reality. You might say, well, that's convicting because I haven't shared the gospel in a long time. It should be, it should be convicting. Because if you genuinely believe that this message is the only message by which one can be saved and avoid God's judgment and that death could come at any point and you walk around all day long with people passing you by, sitting next to you in school, sitting next to you in the coffee shop, sitting next to you at at your work, and you don't share the life-saving message of the gospel with them, but then you say that you are being loving? That wouldn't make any sense in the world. It's more probable that you don't believe the message. That would be more probable than someone who's been saved by the gospel, not sharing the gospel with people who don't know the gospel. And it's gotta be explicit. It's not just like I share like good thoughts about God and say I shared the gospel. No, you didn't. Or that they've seen your good life and they say that you shared the gospel. No, you didn't. Someone's got to tell you that. That's not sharing the gospel. Or like you're a good Christian presence. That's not sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is explicit with words, the message of Christ and how to be saved. The sinful condition of a person, their eternal destiny apart from Christ, what Christ has done, what it means for them, how to respond. I mean, that is sharing the gospel. So when someone says, have you, you know how to share the gospel? You got to understand what is meant by that. And it's pretty simple. People just won't know the truth unless they're told it. And you've got to give them the whole thing because people will receive a half message and a half truth is not truth. Satan uses half truth all the time. That's his greatest weapon. So he can let a person believe that they've accepted Christ because they believed a half message. And then they'll live in that confidence until they go straight into hell. So half truth's even more dangerous. So these believers, they wanted to be used of the Lord. They were faithfully living for Christ. They cared about souls being saved, churches being planted, God being glorified. Paul looked at this multiplication and this obedience to the Great Commission as evidence that these people had been genuinely Saved. That this was a true church. Number six here. We move into repentance. And that's verse 9b. That you, how you turned from God, or to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. And let's end there. They they turned from God or to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So not only had they received the real gospel, they, their lives changed, people saw it, and they began sharing the gospel with others and were faithful in that, but they had shown examples of repentance and were living in, in repentance. Now you have to understand here, that there's two words in the New Testament that speak of repentance. Metanoeo, which means literally means to change one's mind, and then epistrepho, which means to turn around. And so there's two. There's changing of one's mind and there's turning around. Those are the two words in the New Testament that are used to describe, to, which are translated repentance. And here's what happens. The first one leads to the second. Okay, you change your mind and then you turn around. That's what repentance is biblically. And sometimes in the Bible, both are used in one context to describe the full picture, but they're always assumed together. The second is used here, but the first is always used, is always assumed as well. You don't change your life unless you've changed your mind. And so they turned around. They changed their mind and then their lives turned around. That's what Paul looked for. That's what Paul looked for as evidence of genuine salvation. They changed their mind and then they changed their lives. They said, this isn't good anymore. I'm not gonna live in rebellion anymore. I know what God says now. I'm not gonna live like this. This isn't isn't right. This isn't the true God. This is a false God. This wasn't the living and true God. This was a dead, false God. And they turned from what? From idols. Richard Mayhew says that an idol is anything. Any attitude, any belief, or any God that so captures a person's attention and allegiance that God does not have preeminence or first place anymore. So they turned from everything that would be in first place. They let nothing have first place anymore except God. I mean, that's pretty simple. But that's exactly what they did. That was repentance. This was probably speaking of the Gentile believers in the church and, and again, Paul spent not only time in the synagogue, but he spent time outside of it and even probably sent the Jews who were recently converted into the area to reach the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles genuinely converted from idols. I mean, they served dead gods. That's why Paul says here, you turn from those idols to serve the living and true God, Yahweh, the one who really lives. The rest are just dead. This is the true God. There's only one and his son, Jesus Christ. So they were converted And they turned from idols. They turned from anything that would have preeminence, first place in their lives. I think it would be a good question to ask, what has first place in my life? What has first place in my life? If I were to be really honest, what has first place in my life? What has preeminence? Characteristic of a true believer is one who turns to God as the one who is preeminent. And what they turned to, as I mentioned, they turned completely to God, to live for him. He had first place. They submitted to Christ as the Lord. They loved him with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. They followed his word with superior allegiance. And how? How'd they do that? Well, I'm gonna wrap up the last two here because I think the preeminence... Is described here how you turned to God from idols, and now he's going to describe that. And I think that these last two points here are really could just summarize the Christian life serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. That's what he says here at at the very end here service and perseverance. Serve God and keep going. That's it. And service to God encompasses a lot of things. Serve God and keep going. Serve God and wait till you die or till he returns. And don't stop serving him. Keep your hope set on him, on his eternal life, and keep serving the Lord. And so here's what he says here, to serve the living and true God. Remember, this is, not, this is the opposite of an idol, but to serve. He says, so number seven here, our point nine B is service service. And it describes their turning to God. It, des- it describes their turning to God. So you turn to God from idols to serve. This describes it, the living and true God, to come to know this God, know he's the only true God. The others are false gods. They turn from idols and they follow him, his ways, his Christ, his gospel, his word, his salvation. And the word here now connotes they're, he is their master, they are his slaves. You say, well, that's a tough way to put it, but that's, the, that's exactly what God is saying here. That's the word that's used here. Duleo, which is the verb from which we get the word doulos, which means slave. I mean, that's the, that's the verb that's used here. And so he said how you've turned to God from idols to be his slave, are you his, do you, would you describe your life as God's slave? Or would you describe your life as slave to living the life that I want and I'm gonna incorporate God as a convenience, as, as it's convenient for me? That's, that is the, the challenge that we have to be aware of in America being a Christian. I'm gonna live in such a way where everyone thinks I'm a faithful Christian and I'm gonna incorporate God in ways that doesn't really inconvenience me. As where Paul describes it as you became slaves. Slaves. God is the Lord. He's their master. And they're to serve him, obey him, faithfully love him, imitate him, learn from him, herald his word, be protected by him, provided by him. Think about a slave with his master. Stay with him, serve him. Not to be inactive, but to be active. And they were not without hope. Here's the last one, number eight, perseverance. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This describes the Christian life, serving and waiting. Perseverance, let me just say this and we'll be done here but they were taught about his return by Paul. They were gonna serve him and wait patiently for him. This here is not not describing any one particular aspect of eschatology, but I think just given in general to describe Christ's return and the judgment that awaits unbelievers and that they were gonna be delivered from that judgment. There are other points in this epistle which we're gonna see that do describe specific aspects of eschatology, particularly the rapture. But this here is just a general statement. Christ is gonna return and they're gonna be delivered from his judgment. They're gonna wait patiently for him. The word to wait translated here is only used in one only other place in the whole New Testament. And it's this sense of anticipation and expectation. Their hope is in the true gospel. Their hope is in Christ's words about his return. They're continually waiting. They're waiting for who? Look at verse 10. His son... His son, Christ, he's coming from where? Where's he coming from? Heaven, that's what he promised, right? What's well, what the angel announced, right? The same way this man left, he's going to what? Come back. And then the one whom God raised from the dead. Listen, that's significant. That's what I told you. I could just spend so much time. There's no return of Christ without the resurrection of Christ. Because he's alive. And then he ascended into heaven where he's still alive and he's gonna return. And they had to have believed that if they were Christians. You gotta believe in the resurrection. And who's Jesus? He's the one who, look at verse 10, who delivers them from the wrath to come. Again, a general phrase, but here's the idea. Christ is gonna return, God's judgment on unbelievers. If you are one who waits to the end, proves to be a believer in Christ, you will be delivered from God's wrath. How? Through Christ. And so this is the the one that they're waiting for. This is the one that they're waiting for. So let me just summarize this. This is the confidence that Paul has in their salvation. These are the evidences of his election. He says, knowing, brothers, the election of you because, and he lists these, this confidence, celebrating, confirmation, the evidences that he gives. You ready? Pretty simple. They received the true gospel. They heard the real thing. They genuinely received it, not with superficial motives as proof that they received it in affliction. Their lives changed. They became imitators of the Lord and of others, right? It became public and evident to all people. All people saw it. This was pervasive. Everything was changing in their lives. They became evangelistic, fulfilling the great commission. They turned from sin and they were actively serving him and they would and they were holding on Because they wanted to make it to the end. That is a very practical way to assess yours or someone else's salvation. Very straightforward. And this is what they're doing. Now you say, well, how does that apply to me if this is already true to me? Well, Paul says, keep doing it more and more. Don't let up. You should be doing these things more than what you did when you first believed and if this is proof to you that you don't believe, then it would be time for you to repent and believe the gospel. But Paul is celebrating this true church who has been truly saved and elected by God. Let's pray. Father, we come, we're thankful for your word. We know there's a lot here, and, um, but it's so straightforward that we wanna learn from it, glean from it. I pray that you'd help us to do so help us to be people who ruminate on this meditate on it simmer allow it to have its effect in our might in our minds and our hearts for your glory in Jesus name amen